outsmart growth costs less. So, you know, that's why I see alignment there. A national survey conducted by Smart Growth America showed that smart growth costs a third less for upfront infrastructure. So you're saving on construction of new roads, on sewer water lines and other infrastructure critical considering that we already have an infrastructure deficit. So any new growth at a minimum shouldn't add to that. Um, smart growth saves an average of 10% on ongoing services like police, ambulance, and fire. And it also generates 10 times more tax revenue per acre because you're building up. So if you look at the amount of space you're having to use to generate that tax revenue, it's less for these higher infill projects. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and our topic today is the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, which will take place from February 2nd through the 4th in St. Louis, Missouri. If you haven't registered, you can still register for the conference by going to newpartners.org. That's newpartners.org. Before we get to today's guest, I also want to remind our listeners that you can register for a free online equitable development training from Infinite Earth Academy. The next training will take place on January 25th and is focused on how to effectively work with and empower under-resourced communities. Uh, that webinar will be led by uh, Vernice Miller-Travis, our resident EJ equitable development expert. Um, and you can register for that training by going to www.infiniteearthradio.com slash webinar. Okay, now let's get to our guest. Kate Meese is the executive director of the Local Government Commission. The Local Government Commission is the organizer of, of the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference and our partners here at Infinite Earth Radio. Welcome back, Kate. Thanks for having me, Mike. Kate, it's hard to believe it's already been a year since the last New Partners Conference in Portland. I know, time flies. So what are you particularly excited about, about this year's conference? This year, I'm really looking forward to having a, a tangible impact in the community we're going to be in, in, in St. Louis. So in the past, we've gone, we've had a great few days, we've done local tours, we've engaged our local partners through a local advisory committee, and we've made some great partnerships and some great connections, but we had never really utilized all these experts we we're bringing together across the nation to leave a lasting impact in our host city. So that's, that's our priority this year. We're going to do that in a few different ways. We are partnering with the St. Louis Realtors and some other groups like TrailNet and Place Matters to do a, a couple of installations and then uh, an art and youth project. So the first installation is we're looking at doing a protected bike lane demonstration in downtown St. Louis. 
So there, the city's working on a downtown transportation plan. So we will be creating a pop-up lane, a pop-up bike lane, which will demonstrate to residents and city officials alike how they can improve safety and bikeability in St. Louis. So that will be a really tangible way that they can see, can utilize the bike lane, and really think through what that's going to mean for transforming the downtown into a a more bikeable area. The second thing we're going to be doing is creating a permanent park in a neighborhood in Old North St. Louis. So we'll be converting a parcel of vacant land into a neighborhood park, creating a, a great place for residents to take advantage of the green space. So things that you know people will be able to touch and feel and experience while we're there, but moving forward as well. We will also be working with some art organizations in three neighborhoods to provide some technical assistance and in critical areas that they they identify, and then also working with some local youth to build and install three large, uh, what they're calling mandelas in each neighborhood. So they'll be painted on wood and weather eyes, and they'll be really large installations that focus on themes of transportation and urban renewal. So an exciting, again, leave behind, but also a way to bring art into these neighborhoods and to engage local youth. And then the last thing we're doing, which I'm also very excited about, is working with St. Louis Youth Smart Growth Leaders to connect 50 students and their teachers. So they've been working on smart growth projects leading up to the conference. They'll be attending the conference, and then they're going to engage on some of these community-led projects that I've mentioned. So really a a great way to engage our, our future leaders. So we hope that, you know, in addition to bringing a lot of people to St. Louis, in addition to having up to 1,200 people learn about smart growth issues, connect across diverse sectors, that will also leave St. Louis a little bit better as well. So Kate, those are all amazing projects. You're going to accomplish all that during the during the time of the conference or are some of those projects like building the park, for example, is that underway already or how do you plan on attacking that? The park will be started while we're there and it'll be finalized in May. So there will be some follow-up that'll need to happen. Um, The pop-up will happen while we're there. The art installations will go up while we're there. So there's, you know, been some work leading up to this, of course, some, some planning and preparation and working with our local partners they will continue with some of the implementation after after we're gone. Fantastic. So uh, for the conference itself, what are some of the hot topics? What are some of the, the topics that you're most interested in diving into this year? Sure. So some of the, the key topics we're going to be looking at include affordable housing. That's been a major challenge uh, across the nation. And there are a few different ways that we want to be able to look at that, look at some of the critical themes that have popped up and some of the innovative ways that we can address um, those issues. So, you know, in a lot of places, it's growth and pressure looking here in California. We've seen rents and the real estate market just skyrocket. Other places we're seeing really industry closing and we're having an oversupply issue. So we'll be talking about that. 
We'll also be talking about the mobility sector. So we'll be talking about autonomous vehicles and um, some of the, the challenges and opportunities that they present to local communities. So that's, you know, we're seeing autonomous vehicles on the ground now and really see that this is a critical critical time for communities to respond to the, the market shift and really optimize the community benefits. By autonomous vehicles, just, you mean self-driving vehicles? Self-driving vehicles, yeah, exactly. We are also going to have a, a great speaker who's going to be talking about the connection of faith-based communities. So how churches can serve as an anchor and how faith-based communities can really inspire community involvement and action around social equity issues and other issues that um, really are critical to community resiliency. So those are a few that I'm particularly excited about. Sounds like an amazing agenda combined with all the great projects you're going to actually do on the ground in in St. Louis. So Kate, looking at 2017 on the larger issue of kind of smart growth and sustainability, what do you think the biggest challenge or obstacle is moving forward in terms of continuing the momentum towards smarter and more sustainable communities? I think 2017 is going to be a critical year to bridge the divides. So I've been talking to our staff here at the Local Government Commission about really that being the focus of our year. And I think for the movement at large, it's going to be critical. So coming out of the election, I think Thomas Friedman, the New York Times, said said it best by by proclaiming that many people are feeling homeless in America and I know that having conversations with folks like you, Mike, and others here in the office and in the field at large, that really resonated with them. The campaign daylighted deep-seated misogyny, racism, bigotry, um, and a large part result a result of deep disconnect, discontent, and ec- economic insecurity in the country. So going forward, we really need to invest in people and communities that promote upward mobility for all. We've seen the prospect of achieving the American dream drop over the the past half century um, from 90% to 50%. So this isn't um, something that most people, or at least only half of people, can really access the American dream now. And that's because of slower GDP growth, but it's also... A huge factor is the uneven distribution of that growth. And we know that the gap is even larger by race. We know that people of color have less opportunity and access to critical services. And this is also at a time, like I said, where affordable housing is such a a huge issue. Housing prices have skyrocketed. Um, The ability to, to earn income has not kept pace with the growing prices. And we're really feeling that here in California where our average home price is two and a half times the national average and rent is about 50% higher than the U.S. average. So people are really struggling to meet pretty pretty basic needs. I think the other divide that we really should be focusing on bridging is between rural areas and urban areas. That came out pretty strongly during the election that rural residents don't feel respected by their urban counterparts. 
and are well aware of the growing gap between really the metro haves and and have-nots. Rural residents are losing ground and uh, we're seeing that in in polling and um, in the drastically different ways I think that, that people voted across the nation. So we need to be looking at how we can invest in shared priorities, invest in forest and water management that you know provides economic opportunity for our rural counterparts and also benefits for urban areas in terms of you know water quality and um, investment in preventing fires, for example. But there are a lot of other examples that we can look to. Um, to think about how we can really have mutual benefits with our investments. And I, I don't think we're doing a, a good enough job about that, a good enough job doing that. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, if you look, if you just kind of step back and look at smart growth as a movement that really kind of derived out of the abandonment of urban cores uh, of the United States, right, which was a displacement that occurred driven by by policy initiatives, um, some of which were not benign, but some of which were well-intended and benign. And I, I think that we need to step back and look and think about when we care about sustainability, when we're thinking about issues like, you know, a, a carbon neutral economy, what we need to understand is there's huge losers when we move to a carbon neutral economy. It, the benefits aren't distributed equally. And how are we going to take care of those people who are displaced? So, so now you've had, you know, we had a long period of displacement or underinvestment in urban areas, which at least on a coastal basis seems to be, you know, in, in complete opposite mode right now that the urban areas are doing very well. But now we're seeing this lack of investment and displacement going on in places like West Virginia, where, you know, I know people who live there that say the conditions are horrible. People have very little hope for the future. So when we think about policies that we think are that we think are critically important for the environment and sustainability, we need to think about, okay, well, what are we going to do to deal with the displacement and the, and the people who are not going to benefit from these policies? And how do we take care of those people so we don't leave people behind? And so I think that you're, I think that you're spot on this, bridging these divides and, and really thinking about kind of holistic solutions. Right. And I, you know, the studies we've seen show that it's a net positive gain but the reality is, is you're right that that doesn't mean that everybody wins and there certainly will be losers. And so how we address that and how we think about what does smart growth look like across a, a transect. So in California, with our focus on reducing vehicle miles traveled and, and car use and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, a lot of the funding has gone to urban areas because that's where the population is and you can get the biggest reductions of, for the least amount of money. But we also need to consider you know, resiliency around these other pieces, around you know, access to, to food, which is grown in the rural regions, of course, and being able to support things like water, watershed management and um, forest management as well. I mean, our snowpack, everything else that we derive from these rural regions without thinking about ways that we can co-invest. And there, there are structural reasons we can't do that. So, you know, just the example of um, water quality and investment in watershed management, that, that isn't easily done to have urban users pay 
you know, another water district for investment in ultimately what's a cleaner water quality for them. There's not, the structure isn't there to do that. So we need to be able to break those things down so that urban people who benefit from these rural actions can actually invest in the benefits that they see. So, so spot on. So we've talked a little bit about some of the challenges and problems, and this may be the, the answer to this next question may be the same thing, but what do you see as the biggest opportunities or the most promising developments uh, that are impacting smarter and more sustainable communities? Sure. I'm going to, I'm going to actually shift. I think definitely bridging the divide is, is a, a critical thing that we need to do across all those areas. But I, I want to talk about something a little bit different. I think, you know, we, I think the most disruptive thing that will happen and is already happening, which could be a, an opportunity, um, also presents some challenges. But I see the rapid innovation in the mobility sector as the biggest potential disruption and also definitely potential opportunity, either by reducing driving and the need for parking um, and expanded roadways or, you know, potentially the, the flip side of that by making it more convenient for people to drive. So I think the trend towards ride sharing is very positive. We, we've seen MIT scientists have suggested that congestion could be reduced by 37%. So that's pretty dramatic. Um, some studies have estimated that autonomous vehicles could erase the need for up to 90% of our parking over the, the next 15 years. So in thinking about our national infrastructure deficit, and in the U.S., we have roughly four times more parking spaces than vehicles. So I see a huge potential to open up that space and to really have communities invest in, in housing people rather than our cars. And I think the timing is really right for that sort of a, a revolution. We have seen the pace of car use slowing. People up until now are pretty maxed out on their commute distances we see millennials turning away from the car. And like I said, we are seeing ride sharing increasing pretty exponentially. So we have a critical window now. And I think it's just critical that we, we nudge the, the market and the future in the right direction, especially as it relates to autonomous vehicles, which could also make it more convenient for people to drive. And that looks like shared use, it looks like incentives and regulatory environment that encourages shared rides, zero emission vehicles, the the size of the vehicles are going to be important. We want, um, you know, vehicles that fit the, the need. So if it's, if, if it's transporting multiple people in a, a micro transit type scenario, you would have larger cars, but we don't want to see is cars that are big enough to be cafes or movie theaters, which, you know, could happen as well. We want them to be right priced, coordinated with transit. Um, the equitability question is huge. Do we, do we have uh, access that is really for everybody? And then how, how do they operate with bicycles and pedestrians and the active transportation that we also want to encourage? So, you know, People are all over the map on how they feel about autonomous vehicles, but they're in our communities and their presence will be felt in an increasing way. So I think it's really critical that we're planning now to really ensure that we can optimize those benefits moving forward. 
I think that you're, I think that you're spot on. I think that the, you know, the self-driving trucks and the self-driving cars are going to be here a lot faster than people think. And I, I even heard, I've read articles where people are hypothesizing, you know, at some point in the future, it'll be legal to drive your car because that'll be disruptive of that, of that system, right? Because if, if everything is controlled by computers, having somebody driving their own car might end up being problematic. So I, I think you're, you're spot on. I think it's happening. I think the other, the one piece, and, and you mentioned so many important issues and so many important benefits. I think the other hugely important issue that people need to look at is um, driving is one of the biggest employers in the United States. Yep. And in, in particular, Michael Milliken of the Milliken Institute talked about how this election was very predictable. And he talked about how, that the median household income in the United States is lower than it was 20 years ago. And that one out of every six blue collar workers in the United States has dropped out of the workforce. So the unemployment numbers look good, but there's this huge group of people, particularly blue collar people. And now you're going to add to that burden. So it's not just that you're going to lose lots of jobs because I'm sure there will be some jobs that are created but you're losing all these blue collar jobs that employ a lot of people and it's going to be incredibly disruptive. And I think that our economy, I don't think we're having the right conversations or we are able to think the right way about jobs and employment and how to balance our economy in a way that's not about punishing the rich and redistributing to the poor, but is actually creating a economic model that will actually function going forward because the need for labor has been decreasing. It's not just, it's not offshoring. It's not people coming to the United States taking jobs. The need for labor as part, as a piece of our economy is declining and that is accelerating. And we're going to really have to think about what are the implications of that in terms of how people live and how the economy functions. And I don't really hear, I don't hear a lot of conversation about that. You hear a little bit about a universal basic income now. It seems to be kind of a hot topic in some very small circles. But I think that the, the, this administration is coming in and I'm not going to doubt their ability to maybe make some changes and I'm, I'm not going to question the, what's positive or negative. But I think that the one thing that they might be off track on is I don't know that a lot of these jobs are coming back. I don't know that it's a matter of moving jobs, keeping jobs from leaving America or coming back from overseas. I think that the jobs are actually just disappearing altogether. And autonomous vehicles are a very blatant example of that. I think you're, you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it's sort of the, the finger in the dike situation. I mean, we're not going to prevent this flood. And we are seeing jobs increasingly um, become automated. And we can only postpone that for so long. So I think you're right. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but that those are the questions that we need to be asking in communities and, you know, really at every level of government. And, you know, we probably will need to decouple employment from some of the services that we see. And we need to have a, a serious conversation about what that looks like, because it's it's not not going to be an easy one. And we saw that with the Affordable Health Care Act, and that continues to be a an ongoing debate as we look to see some some fairly substantial shifts, more than likely um, on on healthcare. But as you said, as we have less and less need for labor in the market, 
we're going to need to think about what that means for the folks that are already struggling to get housing and what that means for other services like like healthcare. And at some point, it's, you know, the economy just won't function. If there aren't people who have enough money to buy things, it totally shifts the equation. So, um, yeah, and I think, you know, the, the other thing, I, I think we got to not be afraid of technology, right? Like, I think about some of the things like SmartPass that got rid of toll, toll lanes that a lot of people lost jobs. But that in aggregate was good for society. What we just need to figure out is how do we take care of not just take care of because I don't think it's a matter of, you know, redistributing money and just and just having people on you know welfare. It's how do we rethink our economy so that everybody has a purpose and, and something meaningful to do within the economy that provides them a living that where they can feed their family, whether they be in urban areas or rural areas. And so I think that it's just such an, a critically important issue. Yeah, and I think the pace and the scale with which this is starting to happen now is is so much broader than we've seen in the past. And I think we really need to rethink what that means for our education system and what that means for workforce training, because we've got a, a, such a rapid pace of change in an education system that isn't built for those rapid changes, that isn't dynamic, that is that is really static. And as we see, you know, a, really an on-demand culture, we need something more akin to an on-demand education system that can quickly pivot as our, our sectors um, experience such disruptive changes. Yeah. I, yeah. And again, you're spot on. We could, we could probably have a whole conversation. We'd have to do a whole podcast on, on each of those two issues. So let's <laughs> let's move back to sustainability um, and smart growth. And um, so, you know, I, I know that you have no crystal ball as as no one does. But any sense from you know, from your perspective, what the change in administrations might mean for smart growth and sustainability efforts? Sure, definitely don't have a crystal ball. But the, a couple of things that I've been thinking about since the election. One on the shift towards privatization, and then second on the focus around economic development and and what that is going to mean for the smart growth movement. So, you know, first on privatization, the the Trump plan has talked about giving private investors an 82% tax credit to put money into projects um, that they hope will lead to a trillion dollars worth of new projects. So I, you know, we have the potential of seeing some large-scale projects coming in. The challenge is that, of course, investors want a return on their money, and very few transportation projects can really provide one. So you know, we can see toll roads that that get money back, but a lot of those don't really recoup the investment. And I'm really concerned about our dilapidated infrastructure and some of the the priority projects that have to be done really for for quality of life and meeting people's basic needs, but aren't going to be the best investment opportunities. So I think about Flint, Michigan and and the water pipes. Um, There was a story that came out just a couple days ago about the state of of the city of Oakland's water pipes, um, which are, you know, looking at about the levels of Flint, Michigan. So, you know, just replacing the U.S. water pipes alone would cost at least a trillion dollars over the next 25 years. 
So we really need to be asking ourselves, are we only funding projects with high return on investment or are we also going to invest in these urgent um, projects that are meeting people's basic needs? I think it's going to mean that we're going to need to see more investment at the state and local level. I think cities and counties are going to need to do more local ballot measures to ensure their community projects get get implemented and invested in. The good news is we did see a lot of successes in local ballot measures. Voters approved 75% of local ballot measures on November 8th um, across the nation. And that those ballot measures look like they're estimated to be worth about $170 billion. So, you know, community members want to invest in, in the projects they believe in. So, you know, I think we're going to need to see, we'll see these large infrastructure projects built by the administration um, in partnership with the private sector. And we're going to need to be able to do local ballot measures and, and find other creative ways to make sure the, the smaller public benefit type projects um, get invested in as well. In terms of you know, having an administration that's going to have a primary focus on economic development, I think that aligns with smart growth. I, I don't see that as needing to be at odds, but it is going to require that we rethink how we talk about these projects and, and have a different lens on uh, fiscally responsible investments. We've seen that smart growth costs less, so you know that's why I see alignment there. A national survey conducted by Smart Growth America showed that smart growth costs a third less for upfront infrastructure. So you're saving on construction of new roads, on sewer water lines, and other infrastructure. Critical, considering that we already have an infrastructure deficit. So any new growth at a minimum shouldn't add to that. Smart growth saves an average of 10% on ongoing services like police, ambulance, and fire. And it also generates 10 times more tax revenue per acre because you're building up. So if you look at um, the amount of space you're having to use to generate that tax revenue, it's less for these higher infill projects. I think the opportunity to work with the private sector is definitely there. Um, We're seeing that in a major way on uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy. So just one example, the HERO energy financing program that's available um, right now just in California, but it's expanding out to other states, including Missouri. It's available now to 90% of California's population, and the financing can be used for energy efficiency, water conservation, renewable energy. The way it works is it pays for the upfront costs of the measure, and that cost is paid back over time. So you actually, with the savings, you don't see any increase in, you're not, you're not paying, you're paying through the, the energy savings or the water savings. So that's a great example of where the private sector can come in. It can work with local communities. We've seen 16,000 jobs created through this program, $3.4 billion in economic impact. And we're also seeing, you know, $6.8 billion of gallons of water saved and huge amounts of energy efficiency, greenhouse gas emission reduction, um, reduction in utility bills. So 
benefits at all these different levels at the community level at the homeowner level and you know um, helping us reach our state greenhouse gas emission goals so I see a lot of opportunity there. It is going to take more creativity. It is going to take a, a shift to make sure we continue to prioritize um, the investments that are needed in the community. But, you know, I think it, I think it's doable. And I think the other thing that, that goes in the favor of the at the moment that's the wind at our back as it relates to, uh, you know, kind of a more private sector orientation is that. All indications are the demand for walkable, smart growth communities to live in is off the charts, right? That that's that the marketplace is demanding more of that than the actual marketplace is supplying at the moment. Absolutely. So that's that's a huge plus. And then I think on the you know on the on the energy side, on the climate side, um, reading more and more about you know the the shifting economics of of energy markets and how uh, I just was just reading an article today about how how fast electric vehicles are going to become part of the mainstream because of uh, rapidly changing battery technology. So I think there's a lot of momentum going in the way of renewables and uh, a more carbon neutral economy that's not going to be changed or slowed down by some policy changes that there's a, a significant amount of momentum already. That's exactly right. Yeah. And we, we're very inspired to see that I'm inspired to see, you know, over 300 American companies come out and say, we need to continue with the climate talks and continue to uphold our part of the, the, the conference of parties agreement that was signed in Paris because the companies see that leadership on climate change is leadership and in the economy and is strengthening our economy. So, you know, I, I think you're right that the market momentum is there and that there is a, an increasing understanding that we're not choosing between the economy and the environment, that they're, they're ex- completely integrated and we really can't do one without the other. Fantastic. Kate, as always, it's uh, just a pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you all day. And I think that the conference in St. Louis is going to be fabulous. So if you, as a listener, if you have not already registered, please go to newpartners.org and join us in St. Louis on February 2nd through the 4th. And um, Kate, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you in St. Louis and to have you join us next week on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.